Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Seth Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. Ismay Milford to discuss her new book, African Activists in a Decolonizing World, The Making of an Anti-Colonial Culture, 1952 to 1966. In this book, Dr. Milford examines the ways that material culture and networks of travel allowed African activists to form a genuinely anti-colonial and decolonizing culture in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, Dr. Milford, thank you for uh, joining us here at the New Books Network. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you are right now. Yeah, thanks very much for the invitation. Um, yeah, so um, I'm currently based in at the University of Leipzig um, in a center for uh, research on global dynamics. Um, but my the book that I'm talking about came out of my PhD thesis that I that I defended in 2019 um, at the European University Institute in Florence, um, and I guess the the interests that led me to the topic of the PhD maybe to to kind of think back where 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 they came from. Um, I think probably my interest in in processes of political decolonization in African countries. Um, probably first uh, came about through studying actually uh, French literature, francophone literature, and we were reading uh, Mariama Bar and we were watching films of Usman Sombain and these sorts of um, really inspiring uh, cultural products. But and I guess overall my, my background was rather in history um, and especially I suppose the sort of global history approaches and methodologies um, that were on the rise um, over the course of my studies. Um, I had, I guess, other interests in the history of social movements, um, in intellectual history especially, um, and maybe more broadly, uh, kind of linking those two, I was always interested in this question of what prompts uh, people to become interested in the struggles of people elsewhere. Um, so that's 
that's maybe the the kind of broader background, but maybe then more concretely, I I began some research um, for my master's thesis on the Committee of African Organizations um, or COW, which was this quite small and ad hoc organization um, in London in the late fifties. Uh, Hakim Adi has written a bit about this organization, and it features a little in the book. But basically, I, I kind of came out of this project on COW somehow unsatisfied with where I had got to, um, partly because I hadn't really, I hadn't yet seen how Cow reflected um, what we, the narratives that we then had in the literature about what anti-colonialism was all about on the global stage and how decolonization was, decolonization struggles in different places were linked. And I could really already see that that Cow was not, and that London especially, was not really the center of this story. So I was sort of eager to see something of the bigger picture of what the what was the story that this small organization was on the edge of in the way, in a way. Um, and to think about then, I mean, is this then a, a, a Cold War story? Is it a, a history of political thought? Um, is it about mobility or solidarity or, or what and where and when is the, the thing that these activists in this um, organization were the protagonists of, in a way. And something that I really enjoyed reading this was this focus on a regional understanding of decolonization instead of defaulting to this assumption of the nation state, you know, sort of what ends up happening. I mean, in your opinion, what do we gain from this regional perspective and understanding of this history? Yeah, I really think there's a lot to gain, actually, by thinking through region and especially this maybe dialogue between the regional and the global. Um, so I guess the region is important in the book, um, both as subject and as method. And I, th- I think those, those are linked, but distinct as well. Um, I guess I should probably clarify the region that we're talking about is, um, is this region in Eastern Central Africa, which today um, would map onto Zambia, Malawi, Uganda, and mainland Tanzania. Um, so this is in many ways an odd grouping for lots of uh, subjects of um, African history in the 20th century, um, but it's one that emerged from from the material I was looking at. Um, and maybe then another point I should I should clarify is is that I'm not thinking about this region as an official project of uh, federation or integration, um, or really as a kind of uh, an imagined alternative polity um, to the nation state. Um, but I was actually working, I guess, when I was doing my thesis, there were really lots of conversations about precisely that, especially around Fred Cooper's work on West Africa. So that was really, I was I was always aware of these sorts of conversations and thinking about what, what else the region can mean. So I think for, for the actors um, in the book, the region is something that they talked through and worked through, um, and so in that sense, it was it was something real. Um, if we want to use this kind of real, imagined um, kind of characterization of things, um, and it was uh, it didn't have necessarily strict borders, but there was this recurring idea that these countries that I just mentioned had some shared some common political trajectory and that was a trajectory distinct from 
settler colonies on the borders of this region, notably Kenya and what is now Zimbabwe. Um, and I guess also to, to, to mention that this was an, an Anglophone space, and what I mean by that is that English was being used as a lingua franca by an educated elite to talk a, across the region. Um, and in that sense, there are, of course, many other regional setups that relied on uh, um, other um, lingua francas, especially Swahili in this, in this broader um, part of Eastern Central Africa. So then, yeah, where did this region come from? Um, I mean, it was formed in, in one sense through educational institutions and really I think it was solidified as an idea, um, especially when these activists were abroad. Um, and I guess this is a typical thing of, um, of kind of diaspora um, uh, processes um, and understanding how they understood themselves often in relation to, for example, West Africans who might have also been present in many of the cities that they stayed in, um, in these hubs. I mean, in London, quite obviously, but also in Delhi, where, in fact, Eastern Central Africans were were, were higher in number. Um, and then in Cairo, for example. Um, so it really, this region really made a difference in terms of like a comparative lens and how they could be represented um, as a group abroad. Um, and then maybe just to briefly mention this point about region as method, which is then a bit distinct. And really the, this region that I, um, that I worked through in the book was not apparent at all when I started the project. And it's one that, um, that kind of slowly emerged as I followed um, activists, start, partly starting with this organization in London that I mentioned. And I think if I'd started actually with more national, with an interest in, for example, Uganda, then these same figures might have um, come up, but their activities would have seemed quite almost like at a kind of decorative uh, um, quality to them, like a kind of side story to really what was happening in Uganda. And that's precisely, I guess, how they have been understood by, um, by historians who have written about them in, in these national contexts, because, I mean, these are not unknown figures, but they're just ones who are always located in their, typically located in their national stories. Um, so then this, I mean, that this point then with the global is partly then that regional practices were already re transnational in a sense. So this kind of led easily for these activists to, to work on a global scene because they were, they were living regionally through some of the mechanisms I describe. And then at the same time, the um, I think that me adopting this regional lens makes some of their global activities um, or their activities outside of the region look more like a coherent history to, to find some um, some patterns in. Uh, in. I mean, this is not to say at all that these were not nationalists. They were absolutely... Um, we can call them nationalists, just that's something that falls into the background in my book rather than being the right in the foreground. Well, you've alluded to the role of education already, so let's let's start with that first chapter then. Uh, it, it really is sort of an overview of both education in East and Central Africa and also some unique challenges that uh, confront this younger generation in the early 50s. Tell us what we learned from this and how it shapes this sort of broader culture of anti-colonialism 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it was really important for me that this first chapter of the book really unfolds um, in, almost entirely in the region, which is not the case for most other chapters for the book. And this sort of starting point um, in Eastern Central Africa is kind of like a, a bit of a counterpoint to this narrative of young men being radicalized abroad, um, which of course was a, a colonial anxiety um, and has has kind of uh, uh, still remains quite a lot in, in, in the literature. So the main focus of the chapter or the the kind of place I keep coming back to is Makerere University uh, College, which has um, a very long reputation that people um, I'm sure might be familiar with. Um, so I'm still really talking about a, a highly educated and mainly male elite. But what I try to do is to locate Makerere in other much kind of deeper regional dynamics. So I link it to um, secondary school teachers who were themselves often graduates, um, but they were engaging politically with their students pupils. Um, and then this links with teacher training. And here, um, some women actors, um, kind of, we see the involvement of them, too. Um, and then I kind of try and link Makerere graduates to a story of print cultures in the region in dialogue with lots of other fantastic work that's been done in this area, thinking about kind of modes of address and um, different ideas of, of um, of kind of form of protest as well. Um, so the, I guess the, the, yeah, the starting point for the chapter is this strike um, at Makerere that starts, started by Abu Mayanja. Um, and actually Professor Kasozi at Makerere now is, is writing about um, Mayanja in much more detail. But um, what I try to do with the story of the strike is to relate it to um, a broader, yeah, other things happening regionally and important here in the years around 1952 to 53 is one, the, the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya and two, the um, imposition of the Central African Federation um, in which um, brought Malawi, Zambia and Zimbabwe as they now are into a settler-dominated ruled federation. Um, and yeah, these two things, which were were understood by this cohort in a linked way, were really important for defining this region as I as I described it, which um, included these this particular space. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I kind of then chart how these different how these ideas were were shared across this cohort in the region, especially through education institutions through um, print cultures, um, student organizations along party and national lines. We go to Fort Hare in South Africa at some point, um, and we kind of get some sense of party political work um, emerging in this period as well. Or, I mean, being an, this was a, an important period for party political work, was that, although that's not the main focus. So then in the second chapter, and you've touched on this as well, we look at people going abroad. And this is sort of a classic feature and facet of anti-colonial history is people, are, uh, whether, in, whether in a colonial metropole or going to, you know, say, an independent country like India after 1947. What effect does this experience abroad have? And also sort of one of the limitations that emerge for it, because that is one of the points of attention is that it's uh, the activists themselves recognize that there are limitations to it. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think the the limitations point is one that I was I really wanted to try and bring out in this story. Um because like you say it is a it is a it's not surprising and it is a really um uh yeah, classic part of the the story of anti-colonialism this this sort of um education abroad. And it was also in that respect interesting important for me to put Britain and India um in the same lens here. Um so I follow Munusipalo to Delhi and Abu Mayanja to Cambridge or to London as well. Um, and uh, yeah, so and and then we meet through them all of the constraints that they face. And I think then what I try to emphasize is that these limitations or constraints are not a stopping point, but actually they're first a place for them to find some amount of leverage in the um, in the politics of anti-colonialism already happening in these cities. Um, and then second, there's a, a kind of prompt or something to work through in order to think of, in order to come up with certain ways of thinking and approaching this problem of, um, of kind of uh, reaching certain publics to uh, convince, uh, to, to kind of present their political campaigns to. So what were those limitations? I think the first, maybe most important one was probably the ignorance of um, a lot of interested sympathizers. And this applied both in India and in Britain. Um, there was certainly a lot of new interest, partly because of these kind of um, crises events, as they were portrayed that I mentioned before in the region. Um, also because of um, Nehru's kind of foreign policy interests in, in the Indian case. Um, but there was really a lack of um, uh, um, contacts, really, with with the political realities um, in these particular East and Central African countries. So, in that sense, these students became valuable um, valuable contact points and valuable sources of information, and um, and especially because they had these links often to party politics um, in the countries they were born in. Um, or, so what this kind of constraint prompted was for them to adopt lots of practices that were sort of geared towards the circulation of information. Um, so Sipalo started this periodical, Resurgent um, Africa, in Delhi, and uh, Mayandra was busy trying to get articles published in the British press, for example. Um, so we, we sort of follow all these um, endeavours. Um, and then, but then they kind of encountered more limitations then. Um, and that was that the organizations they were working with didn't necessarily share their interests, which is not completely surprising. Um, but yeah, so the, I kind of bring the chapter together through this framework of um, socialist internationalism. Or, but this isn't socialist internationalism in the way that we might think of it in terms of the, the third international, I'm talking rather about an anti-communist, uh, left-leaning anti-communist um, international, um, which brought together to some extent Western European democratic socialists and, um, and socialist parties in newly independent Asian countries through things like the Asian Socialist Conference. And this is something that um, Sulin Lewis, for example, has written some great things about. Um, so for them, this finding a stance on, uh, on anti-colonialism and on what should happen to African countries 
was really a, a kind of a big point of discussion for these these uh, groups. And that's partly where how activists like Zipalo and Mayanja found found space for themselves and for their initiatives, um, kind of organizing conferences, um, publishing newsletters, etc. So, um, yeah, but then at the same time, they, they found um, all these kind of organizational cultures of infighting and really self-preservation, um, which is also not unexpected, but, but, it's, but it's something that doesn't always come out in histories of um, sort of uh, solidarity organizations in a way. Um, and I, I link this as well to other social histories of student mobility in, in the Cold War period um, and experiences of racism that African students um, in, um, uh, in all sides of the Cold War world uh, ex- experience. Um, and this is actually, this is something that's really laid bare then when it, in this section of the chapter where we follow Mayanja to the moral rearmament um, kind of center in in the Alps. Um, this is a, a little bit of a, it's kind of on, on the edge of this, <laughs> this world that I've just described, but it's a really nice case for seeing how, um, how the interests of an organization can, can just, um, can be so far apart from, uh, from those of activists and how uh, ignorant they can be of, of the, the priorities and, and, uh, campaigns that these activists are trying to bring to light. Um, yeah. And I, I, yeah, I guess then there are other limitations that I touch on a bit in terms of the ability to organize um, sort of international or transnational meetings. And this is, of course, the era of um, Bandung that we're talking about now in the mid-50s, where um, where there's this real acceptance that, that a meeting with people from multiple countries uh, countries that are in um, the process of political decolonization is a kind of an end in itself in a way. Um, so we try, we follow then Cipalo's attempts to organize something similar through his African Liberation Committee. And we see really how the fact that, um, that this is a student from a territory still under colonial um, rule still limits even once the even once uh, Cipalo is outside of that place, that that uh, that structural factor still limits the ability to organize uh, a conference and especially to invite others who need passport permissions from the colonial state, etc. Well, that leads us, I think, into the third chapter, which is centered around Accra in Ghana. And for those who might not be familiar, maybe a brief explanation of why Accra is so central would be useful here. But it's also a, a vehicle to discuss um, sort of the, both the promise of Pan-Africanism, especially in this period of the late 50s, and the cracks that are already starting to form in it, even as Accra is entering the limelight. Um, could, could you walk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so, so like you said, Accra is really a, 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 an inspirational, a point of inspiration. And I think I and others as well use, use Accra almost as a placeholder for a bigger thing, which would include um, Kwame Nkrumah as a as a personality and his political thought um, and the kind of event of Ghanaian uh, independence, flag independence, 
1957, and then the the holding of the first All African People's Conference in 58. Um, so that kind of whole um, that all together is really a an important an important um, symbolic and politically important um, uh, thing <laughs> in the history of Pan Africanism and and anti colonialism. I guess for the longer history of Pan Africanism, this also really represented a a um, a, a geographic shift from from um, from thinkers. Um, largely located in the Americas and moving across, back and forth across the Atlantic um, to uh, to kind of organizational force on in within the African continent geographically. Um, so I, I don't, in the chapter in the book, I don't, I don't um, attempt to challenge this narrative or certainly don't dismiss it, but I try to think a bit about the making of it, the making of the narrative at the time of the All African People's Conference, and then, in a way, what this narrative obscures as well. Um, so the chapter is called "Before Accra," and it follows um, five um, sort of important meetings or moments in different places that happened in, I think, the two years before the AAPC in in fifty eight. So that takes us to Cairo, importantly, via John Calacasi. Um, to Bombay, um, to the founding of Cow and uh, Path Mecca that I mentioned earlier on, and also takes us back to Makerere to kind of link up to keep that sort of in the story. Um, and so through all these um, moments, I think what we see is that this cohort were quite cautious, um, and I think uh, with good reason, cautious about the solidarity declarations of Nkrumah or NASA, um, and that they didn't take it for granted that that this that um, that Ghanaian independence would automatically lead to the 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 independence of the rest of the African continent, um, and we can we can really understand why, of course. Um, so they they were interested to try and hold these these statesmen to their to their promises. Um, and that was not to, this is not to say that they didn't believe it to be sincere, but they were, yeah, they, 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 they saw the, the fragility of this, um, of all of these um, mechanisms. So there's a perception among them, and especially um, after these experiences abroad that we just talked about, that, um, that countries in Eastern Central Africa are sort of not really getting the attention they deserve. Um, and so they experience a certain amount of marginality when they are in um, kind of what we could call anti-colonial hubs like Cairo or Accra. Um, and that's, yeah, they, there are small numbers of, um, of activists from these countries. The cohort that I look at is, is really a, a handful and that's quite, um, it's, it's, yeah, the, there, there are more, but um, the, the numbers are um, remained small in the 1950s. Um, and I think coming kind of that we that we are as readers or as that we then approach um, approach these anti-colonial hubs through the activists means that they can kind of uh, show us something 
um, of the tensions between these different political projects, Pan-Africanism, Nkrumah's version of Pan-Africanism, Nasser's, um, and then the tensions with Afro-Asianism and kind of navigate between these. And this this is something actually that um, Seba Batso Manoeli has also shown of activists um, from South Sudan and how this kind of uh, marginal position is shows is makes it easier for us to see um, some of the tensions that are otherwise difficult to pin down. Um, so in the end, I'm, I mean, this is less about the the story here is not so much not about the limits of Pan Africanism as a political program. That wasn't the that wasn't the the kind of um, apprehension of of these activists. It's more about the limits of statesmen as patrons. Um, and that's, I mean, we see that in the story of Pathmecca, where the, the, the activists who meet there are thinking about what to, how to prepare themselves, what to take to the AAPC to kind of, I guess, avert the likelihood that um, Pan-Africanism will be dominated by, um, not only, not, not necessarily dominated by West African nations, but more importantly, dominated by independent states um, and will become a kind of a state a state-led thing. Um, and they have this the same caution really about other sorts of state-based mechanisms. Maybe we'll talk later about the UN. Um, and that's part of what, what um, drives them or um, yeah, prompts them to, to place much more emphasis on non-state uh, mechanisms like exchanges of students and scholars um, and journalists and funds for meetings. Um, these sorts of things. And that's something that the, the Afro-Asian Networks Research Collective has really um, done some great work to kind of bring to light how important all of these non-state um, kind of routes to political change were. Now we need to pause for just... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Well, you've teased your fourth chapter for us, so I think we should absolutely hear about it. And this is, this is a chapter of interest to me because, uh, early parts of my own scholarship, I sort of look at at least tangentially people going and petitioning the UN or lobbying for the UN. Um, you call attention to both how important it was, but also uh, some of the limitations. And it's framed here specifically against the ongoing war in Algeria between 1954 and 1962. Break that down for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this chapter follows on in a way from, from um, the one uh, that we just talked about, kind of the before Accra and everything that activists um, observed and uh, acted on in in the run up to the AAPC, um, and then what's so what's really left for them because of this, uh, I guess, emphasis on self fashioning that really uh, surrounded Accra um, and the AAPC, and as it did at Bandung, there's really. Uh, a new or a heightened awareness of the stakes of um, of kind of 
being understood as a respectable, respect, res, respect, respectable organization or a radical organization or, or whatever else. Um, uh, so there's then this question of well, what does effective publicity look like if if once once um, once that's been established. Um, so the chapter thinks quite a lot about form and genre, um, pamphlets especially, about questions of authorship um, and understandings of what, what the uh, role or impact um, of something like a pamphlet can be. And I try and deal a bit with the, the kind of physical and visual um, aspects of these these objects as well. And, and that's something that goes throughout the, the book to some extent, but especially in this chapter. Um, and then the be- the other big question, and this is where Algeria comes in, is is the violence question, the question of violence, and that's also, of course, being famously being discussed um, at the AAPC of of um, of whether or not violent um, modes, um, violent liberation struggles are um, acceptable or indeed uh, necessary. Um, with uh, Franz Fanon, of course, famously um, famously arguing that they were indeed necessary. Um, so there's there's this among these uh, activists who are not directly involved in in that debate. Um, there's a a perception that violence attracts publicity, um, but they're also thinking of violence increasingly in in different ways as we would today. We we don't think of colonial violence as being confined to physical acts of violence, but also more systemic and structural um, aspects. And they, they are kind of thinking along these lines as well. Um, not, not that they're necessarily the first ones to do so, but that they are thinking through this really as they, as they go about their work of, um, of publicity campaigns abroad. So they're thinking especially about bureaucratic violence um, and um, the difficulties of obtaining permits to organize meetings, permits to publish, um, and they are then linking this directly to what is happening in places like Algeria and trying to um, trying to really bring what their bring experiences that they either are um, seeing firsthand or hearing about through their colleagues in Eastern Central Africa and trying to see how these can be effectively presented in different forums. Um, so I talk a bit about uh, police, the representation of the police um, and of prisons as well. Um, so this this kind of, yeah, um, gets to some of these more uh, uh, kind of physical aspects and tries to understand how intellectual trajectories are very often grounded in, in these things. Um, and then this is this is where the UN comes in as well, um, because Algeria, of course, does eventually um, become a, a subject of, of, um, of hearings at the UN, despite the objection, the long objection of, of France, that this is an internal issue. Um, and but for these activists, they're they're seeing that um, that this that this um, yeah that they're finding that the UN um, certainly at the level of the General Assembly feels completely inaccessible to them. And this is, I think, actually a point I would have m- liked to develop much further. I follow it a little through um, the figure of Kanyama Chiyumi, um, 
and his attempts to um, kind of to get the the violence of the Nyasaland um, emergency in 1959 into forums like the UN, um, also the European Commission of Human Rights and other other international forums and the the difficulty um, that this in, entails. Um, so overall, yeah, this this chapter is kind of uh, showing showing that the UN was was not as important as we might expect um, for these activists, and explaining why. Um, Does that hold for the AAPC as well, or is that uh, sort of secondary here? Is there a different dynamic at play? Yeah, um, to some extent, I do see there are we there are. Uh, I, I, I found correspondents um, kind of complaining, especially then the second AAPC in Tunis, Sipalo um, complaining uh, there's not been enough time given to um, Eastern Central Africa. There are no Eastern Central Africans on the um, sort of permanent organizing committee, um, these sorts of things. And I, I mean, I don't deal so much with the bigger um, political conflicts that come about then between like Tom Boyer and um, the, the kind of the politics of pan-Africanism that um, which which is certainly important here but that's that's um, it's a little bit separate from from what I think about so I yeah I wouldn't say they don't I don't think that they that the activists in the book think of the UN and the AAPC in the same uh, as in the same terms as kind of um, inaccessible far away imperial dominated things that's really that's really the un but the aapc they 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 do see the the kind of the difficulty of these um state led uh kind of international groupings and then now we arrive at the congo and i think this this chapter was a favorite of mine because it's such an interesting intersection both with the global cold war but also and this is a question I come back to it again and again, how much can we connect the Cold War to questions of decolonization and sort of what's, what's the appropriate point to separate and to connect? What effect did it have for these activists? Uh, can you explain that for us? Yeah, yeah, it's also it's a question that's always um, preoccupied me as well, kind of what, what did the Cold War, Cold War mean for um, activists like the ones I, I follow in the book? Um, and that's, I suppose, speaking to uh, a really, yeah, a, a kind of body of work that has resisted this um, temptation to just place decolonization something as somehow within the history of the Cold War, um, and to recognise that for some people acting in a Cold War world, these categories were really of kind of Cold War categories were really just um, irrelevant European. Uh, categories that didn't really reflect their political priorities. Um, so I tried to, so yeah, to, to engage with that, uh, that work. Um, and yet also recognize that these activists did have to operate in firstly, this discursive field of the Cold War, and then also the, the world of funding and travel possibilities that the Cold War um, made real um, in a way. So the Congo, yeah, is really an important reference point for this. And I think important because from a regional perspective, of course, the Congolese, regardless of uh, the Cold War for these Eastern Central African 
countries, um, the Congo um, and its independence, um, and everything, the the everything that came with it, the murder of Patrice Lumumba, um, etc., was a really was always going to be an, a very important reference point. Um, but it maybe was a way for them to think through what the Cold War meant as well. Um, so I uh, I sort of use in the chapter this idea of conspiracy, thinking through other work as well on rumor and um, that's been that's been um, done. Um, so I, I guess then what the what these activists are confronting with the Congo is the fact that some of their strategies for uh, kind of information circulation, we might call it, were um, had to sort of then deal with the slipperiness of truth, or maybe more precisely, the fact that infrastructures of knowledge production, as, as we would call them, I think that those would not be their words, were really still very much um, under the control of the colonial uh, uh, world. Um, and they weren't thinking about this in an abstract way or a sort of high, high intellectual way, as some thinkers um, uh, were at the time, um, but rather through their their daily uh, practices, how to get around it, and how it matters that um, that only who will publish a pamphlet and who will endorse it and how it will get sold, um, these sorts of things. So this this question of um, colonialism as conspiracy um, comes up in a pamphlet that Municipalo um, uh, prefaced prefaced. Um, in, and then circulated at the founding conference of the Non-Aligned Movement in Belgrade in 61, um, that really uh, deals with this fact that this was not an, this battle for kind of information or, or different narratives of what is happening in Eastern Central Africa is not one being fought openly on the page as as they might have um, hoped and assumed to some extent in the early 1950s, it's one that's that's also that's got a lot of uh, secrecy involved. Um, and an event like the murder of Lumumba really, really just kind of proved them right. So the Congo was then an important reference point for thinking through this idea that um, of what what does the strategy of publishing and circulating paper. Uh, mean once you once you uh, once you know that that uh, that kind of that knowledge is uh, is to some extent um, constrained within colonial structures. Uh, yeah, um, I think then the other link to the Cold War that we get in this chapter is through youth and student internationals, and I try and look a bit at the competition between them. Um, and this also links back to actually chapter two on the Socialist International, because one of the the organizations that I look at here is the International Union of Socialist Youth, which is operating in this same part of the Cold War world of a Western European anti-communist uh, democratic socialism. Uh, and it's Kind of a useful way to understand why these activists are not um, are not really radical in the way that uh, in terms of when we're talking about radicals in a in a cold war sense. And there's I guess been some 
conflation of uh, what is radical in in terms of African anti-colonialism mapping onto somehow links with um, with the communist world. Um, and so I try and kind of uh, think outside of these frameworks a little bit um, through that uh, youth international organization. And then you conclude the book with a study of radio. Why focus on radio and what does it tell us about the aspirations and afterlife of this sort of regional culture of anti-colonialism or framework of it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So thanks for the question. It's, I was unsure if the radio part kind of stuck out a little bit because I had made this sustained point throughout the book about um, paper objects and print cultures. And uh, so in a way, the radio part could almost be a coda, perhaps if I'd been a bit more creative about the book structure. <laughs> but at the same time, I guess radio really has this appeal when you're trying to think about um, about uh moving ideas across borders and about um, social movements and uh, kind of the how how some people will adopt the the campaign of people who are uh, that they don't uh, know personally um, and at the same time radio was a really nice way to kind of bring together lots of the quite kind of messy trajectories that the book had tried to follow. So it mapped onto the chronology of different um, anti-colonial hubs in a way. So um, there was um, kind of radio, yeah, uh, important broadcasts for Eastern Central Africa from first from India and then from Egypt in Cairo and then from Ghana. And then now when we arrive at them in the chapter in Tanzania in newly independent uh, Tanganyika in in the early 1960s specifically, um, and in Dar es Salaam. So the yeah, it also yeah um, the the what we what I focus on in the in this part of the chapter about radio is broadcasters from the Zambian um, United National Independence Party um, broadcasting in Dar es Salaam, and this also kind of reiterates the the approach throughout the book, which is this kind of maybe micro um, historical type of analysis um, that really emphasizes the practical and the everyday. Um, so things like who can use this vehicle in Dar es Salaam, um, this idea that all the scripts have to be translated and checked by whatever official. Um, and then, yeah, I, I talk a bit at, this, at, at the same um, chapter about a secretarial school um, in Dar es Salaam for um, women UNIP, um, UNIP women trainee typists and secretaries. Um, and that's another really nice way to, to get at some of these dynamics that I've been tracing throughout the book about training and and the, the kind of everyday histories that accompany these um, sort of solidarity projects or transnational anti-colonial uh, work, essentially. So then, the, I mean, the radio, the part on radio is also part of this um, broader chapter charting what I guess is like the fall of the anti-colonial culture that is the, the subject of the book. Um, but I didn't, I didn't want to give the impression of, um, of a, a simplistic um, an end. And of course, these, these things never are. Um, 
never do end that that simply so um so the 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 point on radio also gives this sense of of um of ongoing modes of communicating um different political projects and and that's something actually that still radio interests me in some of my current work as well um and it's then a way to help me point out um uh other other afterlives like as you said of of this culture tracing it for example to um anti-apartheid activism which um which was uh yeah which was kind of had had different characteristics but perhaps um built on some of the of the things that that these activists um the worlds that these activists moved in in the 1950s and early 60s and operating out of the same base too because dar of course yeah. becomes the headquarter for lots of different liberation movements but among them anti-apartheid groups yeah absolutely and that's so that's also the this is i guess the beginning of uh this end what is the end of this story is the beginning of the story of of dar and then later of lusaka as these as these uh, new hubs for for um other types of anti-colonial um activism and i guess then in that sense this the chapter charts that the this chronology of um of different hubs and the the kind of um I guess disillusionment, although I'm not sure if that's going too far, of um, that the activists end up seeing in, for example, the Afro-Asian People's Solidarity Organization in Cairo and then in Accra and then in Dar as well to some extent. This has been a really interesting conversation. I will always like to close by asking, you know, and I think you might have alluded to it a little bit with radio, but perhaps not. Um, what are you thinking of working on next? Yeah, so radio is indeed a, some, a, a small part of it. Um, at the moment, I'm I'm tying up uh, a few things with a project that I was involved in called Another World: East Africa and the Global 1960s, um, which was a team project le- led by Emma Hunter um, at Edinburgh, and we have been working, for example, on a teaching resource. Um, we've compiled um, biographies of what we've called. Um, East Africa's Global Lives, um, and my colleague Anna Adima has been working on a data visualization for some of um, the, the research that we did as part of this project, and we've got a project book coming out um, soon as well, so that's all really exciting. Um, and then at the same time, I'm now getting started with a, a new individual project, which kind of leads quite um, quite quite neatly from from the uh, book that we've talked about um, because I was still really interested in this idea of information and um, kind of different ideas of uh, what the role of information and its technologies um, in independence, in liberation, in development as well later. So that I have this project about information in East Africa in the post-independence period, thinking about the training of journalists and librarians, especially, and trying to think about the kind of the making of what we now call the information society and actually how looking from East Africa could make the global story look a bit, um, look different um, in some really interesting ways. Um, Yeah. And then, yeah, finally, at the same time, I'm also developing, actually kind of coming out of that and developing a a new project on environmental data um, 
and aerial mapping, remote sensing, um, and the politics of satellites, still with an East African uh, focus. You were busy. Uh, I look forward to following all of these projects, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me.